0: We tend to view the past using rose-colored glasses, but should we? This show delves into the dark recesses of human history to see if the good old days were truly the good old days. This is Kinsey, and I've used a rotary phone old.
1: And this is Allie,
0: and I'm dial-up old. (laughs) You know, we can't grow our podcast without your support. So if you are enjoying this, please go on your favorite platform and give us a five-star review. doesn't really matter what you say, but your ratings can help us get discovered by other listeners so we can keep bringing you these morbid and absurd moments in history. And if you know of an event we need to cover, shoot us a message. We also have a limited number of stickers to send to you, our amazing listeners, to help us spread the word. Go on our website, click Sticker Squad for more information.
1: And be sure to follow our social media at O oh The Good Old Days. That's O O H T H E G O O D A Y S. So good and days sharing a D. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube, and we're on threads. You
0: know, Ellie, I think about this a lot every day when I go to work. I, I think I want to pivot and do something else. I don't know. Maybe my job isn't what I always wanted it to be. What about you? What do you think about the nine to five grind?
1: Uh, you know, I'm, I'm as much a fan of it as everyone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Growing up, I've always wanted to be a cartoon voiceover artist. I don't know why, but I thought the person who did the voice for Bugs Bunny and Scooby-Doo were like the coolest people ever. Then I realized it's very hard to break into that. So I'm yeah. like, I want to be a topographer. I want to design fonts. Do you know how much money is in designing fonts?
1: Uh, I think it costs about $9 to buy a font, so I can't imagine very much. (laughs) (laughs) Do
0: you know the number of free fonts out there? (laughs) (laughs) So I decided to go down and learn more about jobs of yesteryear just to see what other choices I would have had if I was born a couple of hundred years ago. So instead of starting by telling you our Latin phrase, let me tell you about the etymology of the word career. Now, way back when, it actually used to mean running at full speed, and it came from the French word, carrière, which means race course or road. That term had come from the Latin word chorus or chariot. Back in 1803, that term pivoted to mean the course of one's public or professional life. So this really means that for tens of hundreds or thousands of years, humans didn't really define themselves by their career like we do now. It's a relatively modern concept. When you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, early humans were hunter-gatherers, and there were no jobs or job applications for that. Then your job became whatever your father did, and his father did before him, and so on.
1: Meanwhile, most people today have more than one different career throughout their own life.
0: Well, you know what, Ellie? We always hear people saying, oh, I miss the good old days when people weren't afraid of a robot taking over their jobs in the near future. But what I want you to do is dust off that resume, pick the right buzzwords, and let me set the scene for you. Back in the good old days. Let's start with the days before the bedside alarm clock. After all, how did you get to work on time? Well, back then, people paid to get knocked up. That's right. There was a job called the knocker-upper. And that job came into popularity around the industrial era in the 1800s and early 1900s. Armed with a long stick or pea shooter, the knocker-upper would go around from house to house to house and use their stick or pea shooter to wake people up. You know, like a spitball, a straw but with a dry pee. <laughs> they were persistent and they kept on knocking until their client woke up, but they had to be careful. Because as they went through house to house, they had to be loud enough to wake up their client, but not so loud that they woke up non-paying people. The knocker-upper was hired usually by the mill or a factory, and their job was to make sure that people showed up for their shift on time. Other times, they were hired by the employee themselves who just wanted to make sure they got to work on time. If you've ever read Charles Dickens' Great Expectation, you might have heard him mention knocking up. And one of the people who discovered the first victim of Jack the Ripper looked for a policeman, and he found one pretty quickly because the policeman was the next street over knocking people up, supplementing his income. (laughs) The witness complained that the officer chose to continue his knocking duties rather than his policing duties.
1: Hey, you know what? He was, he was taking his responsibilities. I respect it.
0: <laughs> well, the wrong responsibilities at that time.
1: <laughs> he, he, he wasn't on shift. He wasn't on shift. I, I respect it. You leave oh, no. work at home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I found a newspaper article from 1878 where the journalist referenced a Mrs. Water. She lived in North England. Now, Mrs. Waters charged people 18 pence a week if she was to wake them up before 4 a.m. And if it's after 4 a.m., they paid a shilling. A shilling is 12 pence. If they needed to wake up between 5 and 6 a.m., they paid her anywhere from 3 pence to 6 pence, depending on where they lived. I did the math because, of course, I did. (laughs) This is probably the most complicated monetary system ever. 12 pence, also called a bob, is one shilling. And there are 20 shillings in a British pound, and that's 240 pence in one pound. This is all pre-1971. So thank you, Britain, for finally getting with the times and only having 100 pennies instead of 240 pence in one pound. <laughs> Got
1: to get right. like Canada and get rid of the pennies <laughs> altogether.
0: <laughs> I can't wait till we get rid of the pennies.
1: they are so useless. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just had to rate a little bit about Britain's monetary system. And I didn't even cover a, uh, a FAR thing, which apparently is a thing. And they have a 2 bob bit too, but whatever. British listeners, if I got it wrong, please explain it to me. I really tried. <laughs> so one shilling in 1878 is like charging a little bit under five pounds today. To our American listeners, that's $6.08. What could you get for one shilling in 1878? A four pound loaf of bread. I didn't that's know bread. It's a big bread. loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know bread was measured <laughs> that way. I never really <laughs> thought about it.
1: I feel like a usual loaf of bread is like what, one or two pounds? That's a that's a big honking. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm <laughs> underestimating the weight of bread.
0: Yeah, but you and I are at a disadvantage because neither one of us eats wheat. <laughs> this
1: is well, okay. If it was gluten-free bread, a four-pound loaf of bread would be about the size of my fist.
0: <laughs> I gotta give you some Mrs. Water quotes because they were just a gold mine. So Mrs. Waters elaborated on some of her favorite customers. In her words. She said, and I quote, I have been inclined at times to knock some men up for nothing just because it was pleasant to hear them.
1: <laughs> to hear them? Like, oh, oh, God. <laughs> I don't know, I've never knocked up a man, so I don't know what sound they would make. Like, yeah, uh, just the, the shock of being woken up when you weren't expecting it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still, I'm
0: still stuck on the word knock up.
1: This is fair. This is fair. <laughs> I wonder when the, ter- when the term changed.
0: <laughs> well, Mrs. Waters also had some women that she knocked up, to use her vernacular. And again, another quote, I knocked up for two years two young women who were sisters. They got me to knock them up. <laughs> Mrs. Waters loved her job, and she only had a few complaints, and they were sour men and wet weather.
1: Oh, yeah, I hate both.
0: <laughs> Mrs. Waters claimed that she made anywhere from 30 to 40 shillings a week, which is about 150 to 200 pounds in today's money, or about $200 for us Yanks. Another one, Carolyn Cousins, also known as Granny Cousins, was born in 1841. She began knocking people up when she was 60 years old and continued to do so till she retired at 77 in 1918 in England. Then there was Mrs. Bowers, and she knocked up people alongside her dog, Jack. Ooh. I even found a picture of Mrs. Bowers and Jack. He's an adorable terrier mix. Now, there were male knocker-uppers, like the police officer I mentioned earlier, but the women were much better documented. The most popular knocker-upper in history... She even had a children's book written about her. She was Mary Smith. She worked in London and charged six pence for knocking people up, or about 250 British pounds today. Her daughter, Molly, is thought to be the last knocker-upper known. The introduction of electricity and household alarm clocks marked the end of the knocker-uppers, and by the 1950s, the vocation died in England, Ireland, and the rest of the world. All right, so maybe being awake that early is really not to to my liking here. Uh, so I don't know if that would make a good job for me.
1: Yeah, no. Have you heard of groom of the stool? Hmm. I'm hoping stool is not poop.
0: It is. This is the original shit shop. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Back in the late 1400s, there weren't actual bathrooms, and the toilet itself was mobile and called a stool. So groom of the stool would literally carry the stool around with him from place to place with water, towels and a washbowl. He made sure that this stool was empty and clean. Most of all, he had to know the king's bowel movements to make sure that he had the stool available whenever the king felt a you know, a need for it. <laughs> the groom also monitored the king's poop and reported the poop status to the royal physician.
1: Oh my god. <laughs>
0: They also helped the king get dressed or undressed, depending on which stage of the pooping they were in. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there is a historical dispute as to whether there was actual wiping involved. But believe it or not, this was actually a very prestigious position because it gave whoever was helping the king unfettered access to the king. You got the king's ear while he was uh, at, at his most vulnerable, I guess.
1: I wonder how you got that job.
0: Oh, I will tell you all about it. (laughs) You knew someone who knew someone who knew someone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so like today.
0: (laughs) Except it pays a lot more. (laughs) Oh, that was a spoiler. I'm sorry. Well, (laughs) Sir Arthur Denny, born in 1501, had a very special key of gold that was laced with a blue ribbon that could lock and unlock King Henry VIII's chamber a chamber being like their private room, personal Mm -hmm. room. He even had control over the king's stamp, effectively the royal signature, and it gave Denny the symbolic power of signing the king's name. He even persuaded the king to appoint Edward Seymour, some dude, as Lord Protector of the Realm. But other grooms of stools were not as lucky. So Henry Norris was a political ally of Anne Boleyn. I'm sure you all know the story of Anne Boleyn. Shortly after she was executed, he lost his head, too.
1: Oh, Pretty
0: shitty situation. Yeah. Fear not, though. Queens had ladies of the bedchamber. We have documented historical proof that both Queen Anne, who ruled in the late 1600s, and Queen Elizabeth I, a.k.a. the last queen of the Tudor dynasty, a.k.a. the Virgin Queen, had a lady of the bedchamber, too. Now, Matt King George III, employed the most grooms in a single reign. Nine. Nine people saw him take a poop.
1: At the same time? No, no, at different times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in fact,
0: one of those poop watchers was John Stewart, who later became Prime Minister of Great Britain. I mean he has that's- a great TV show now. <laughs> I mean, that's some promotion from book watcher to prime minister. Yeah. (laughs) From one shit to another. (laughs) (laughs) Now, crazy enough, groom of the stool, which at some point became groom of the stole, starting in Stuart era, was a job until 1901. Oh my God. (laughs) When King Edward VII decided to abolish it. A little sidebar about Mad King George III. During the last decade of his reign, he became, quote, mentally deranged, as a royals.uk website claims. Some medical historians just said that his mental state was caused by a hereditary physical condition, possibly due to the massive amount of inbreeding along royal lines. That tracks. The groom of the stool was given lodging wherever the king chose to reside. He was also given the king's old clothes and furnishings. While secondhand clothing might not seem to be that prestigious, keep in mind that the king's clothing was always made of the finest materials, silks and furs. They were extremely expensive and lash. Now you asked, how do you become groom of the stool? Like I said, you have to have serious connections because this ensured that you were a close confidant of the king. In fact, The first groom of the stool of Henry VIII, William Compton, was given land grants, land leases, and offices that brought him about 2,000 pounds a year. 2,000 pounds a year in those days is about 2 million pounds in today's money, like $2.5 million. Holy cow! (laughs) (laughs) All for watching the king poop and making sure his stool is clean. (laughs) This wasn't just a British thing, the French had their own version. Granted, there's only one king who can reward his number two man, (laughs) with power, influence, and a small fortune. For every king, there were many, many less noble British citizens. And you know what? Everybody poops. I think that's a book.
1: (laughs) It is.
0: (laughs) While the groom of the stool looked after the king's velvet-lined throne, gong farmers looked after the average person's poop.
1: Hmm.
0: Gong comes from the old English word, to go. Unlike the groom of the stool, a gong farmer was considered a bit taboo for the average person. So gong farmers, also known as gong scourers, often worked at night emptying human waste from castles and home privies. These are the days before indoor plumbing. The average person would essentially sit on a bench that had a hole in it to do their thing, either at home or in the public so-called house of easement. By the Tudor era, the late 1400s to early 1600s, these benches were hung over the moat or a hole outside. When someone did their thing, gravity did the rest, and poop just dropped into a cesspit. You didn't think we'd be talking about poop so much today did you?
1: <laughs> Anyone who's been to a, a music festival and tried to use a porta potty probably knows exactly what this was like.
0: <laughs> Smelling <and all>. off. <laughs> Now, gong farmers would work in groups of three or four and go into cesspits and collect buckets of, quote-unquote, night soil. Ugh. I don't know if that means people only pooped at night back then. Like,
1: <laughs> sorry. Yeah, When the day's done, you can only do it after the sun goes down.
0: <laughs> My mind just goes to weirdest places. So after they would collect this night soil, to call it You know, something a little nicer than poop, they would load it into a cart and transport these poop buckets to a bigger cesspit outside the city limits. Or they would double dip and sell these as fertilizer to farmers for crops. Now, gong farmers, for obvious reasons, were only allowed to work at night, but people could still point them out during the day because, you know, bathing wasn't commonplace back then. These poop scoopers, were limited to where they could live because they just smelled so bad. In addition to being socially ostracized, clearly there were serious health hazards to working in poorly ventilated cesspits, as I'm sure you can imagine. Back then, there wasn't a medieval OSHA to protect these workers from noxious gases and toxic waste. I even found a historical account of people dying on the job, it was that dangerous. Richard the Raker, we really do have to look into people's names, I'm guessing he raked poop.
1: So- yeah, I think that, that's what I would go with too, yeah. So Richard
0: the Raker drowned in a shit-filled cesspit in
1: oh, 1325. No. He drowned. <laughs> that is the mm. ultimate shitty ending. Yeah, that is... That is pretty... I mean, you also, like we mentioned in the last one, this is the era of miasma. So people, like, they just assumed, you would assume you would get sick working in the cesspit because it obviously was not a good smell. Right.
0: (laughs) Cesspits were also harder to reach. So men of smaller stature, or more commonly, younger boys, were used during this job. Now, there is a perk to being a gong farmer. They were allowed to keep any valuable they dug out of the poop.
1: You think there were a lot of valuables?
0: (laughs) I mean, if I dropped a ring, I I don't know how often I would, but if I did, I'm definitely not going to get it.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, Yeah, because you're not fishing a cell phone out of that toilet. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Because, you know, they they only had an iPhone 4 back then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: those were the the dark ages.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, not as highly paid as Groom of the Stool one day of gong farming paid the equivalent of a week's pay at any other medieval job. Historical records from the 15th century show that two shillings or about a hundred dollars today was the going rate per ton of poop. I don't know how they measured it, but I'm gonna assume like by the cartloads.
1: Yeah, that that tracks.
0: Now crazy enough, not everybody got paid in cash. Somebody got paid in a pounds of candle wax. Another gong farmer, under Elizabeth I, was paid in brandy. I mean, you got to do something after you shovel poo. Yeah, all the, you know, I, I,
1: I feel like I'd be, I'd be <laughs> drinking a lot, quite, a lot, quite often.
0: <laughs> now, later in history, they were called the night soil men instead of gong farmers. And you can actually find mention of this job as late as the 1800s. We're going to pivot over to the United States here and as American cities grew larger and denser in the 19th century, urban infrastructure just couldn't handle the sheer poop tonnage that its oh, residents man. produced. In fact, New York was the dirtiest city of them all, according to Atlas Obscura. So as an example, in 1844, it was estimated that Manhattanites. Manhattanites, Manhattanites, you get Man- yeah, ha- people from Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Oh, alone, produced nearly eight hundred thousand cubic feet of excrement. How much is eight hundred thousand cubic feet? That's the trunk of fifty three thousand middle sized cars.
1: That's so specific. <laughs> <laughs> Let's
0: measure poop today. <laughs> Oh, that's per day, by the way.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an important clarification. Apparently, they only
0: pooped at night. So there yeah. Was a,
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, you should. It was, that was per night, of course.
0: <laughs> uh. Uh. Once they took all that poop, they carted off to country farms to be used as fertilizer, um, just like they did in England. Yes, yeah. But not always. In Washington D.C., one of the dumping grounds for poop was a field near the White House, where a a marsh of Washingtonian waste putrefied under the president's nose. Some people
1: theorize. call that Congress. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> I don't blame I don't like you at all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, besides <the> Congress. <laughs> now, some people theorize that this waste <laughs> is, may have been a contributing factor to President Harrison's untimely death in 1841 as the White House water source was a mere seven blocks downstream. Ooh, too Now, close. a typical privy needed to be cleaned two, three times a year. So I think I may have been off and it's not per day, but it's still 53,000. That's still a lot. I'll I'll have to look it up and I'll correct it next episode, I promise. So a typical privy only needed to be cleaned two, three times a year. But think of how many people lived in any city at any given time. And you know what killed this career? Sewage, sewer systems, and people finally realized you really should not poop where you drink.
1: I guess in a way the job kind of still exists because I mean you have to pay people to pump out your septic tank if you don't live in a city, if you li- if you're in a rural area.
0: I guess, but nobody's like using shovels to do it. We have technology to do that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> shovels are sometimes involved. I've seen some pretty horrific stuff up here.
0: <laughs> I, you know what? I, I've been a suburbia girl my entire life. I don't really know what life like in the middle of nowhere. <laughs>
1: It can be gross. It can be gross.
0: You know what? Now that I think about it, I I don't think waking up early is a new job for me. And I really don't think dealing with poop is going to be in my future either.
1: Yeah, no, you got anything else?
0: <laughs> and that's poop royal or otherwise, although two and a half million dollars does make it tempting.
1: You know that, when they say, what would you do for a million dollars? I would help someone poop for that much.
0: <laughs> what if it's two million dollars per year?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm not the other one. I wouldn't want to be like a, you know, general pop person, but.
0: The royal poop is special.
1: Yes. Uh, But you know what?
0: I wanted to find another job and I'm like, I love food. Food is great. Yeah. So I thought of a different job that I could try out. John Aubrey, an author and philosopher from the late 1600s, wrote a book about different customs, traditions, and ceremonies that he witnessed growing up. One of those customs was called sin-eating. Now, John states that one custom of funerals was to hire a poor person who would take upon the unconfessed sins of the deceased. He goes on to describe one instance in which a, quote, long, lean, ugly, lamentable, poor rascal in the county of Hereford in England attended a funeral. That's one way to describe somebody. <laughs> yeah, I was
1: putting that on my Tinder bio. <laughs> Uh, Do you swipe right or left? I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The family of the deceased would bring a loaf of bread and a bowl of beer that were passed over the corpse to the long, lean, ugly, lamentable rascal. (laughs) As with many rituals, the sin eater would have a specific prayer to recite while eating. According to John goes, I give easement and rest now to thee, dear man. Come not down the lanes in our meadows and for thy peace I pawn my soul. Amen. He was paid six pence, or about four and a half British pound in today's money, so like $5.67. In fact, some sources claim that the food wasn't just passed over the corpse, but actually placed on the corpse's face or chest. Now, back to John Aubrey, he thinks that this custom of sin-eating came from Leviticus 16 verses 21 and 22. In essence, he described sin-eating as an interpretation of the use of the word scapegoat. I don't know how the it was so, made. So, <laughs>
1: uh, if you listen to episode one of The Devil's Dirt Star, we actually go into great detail of the eating of sins and scapegoatism.
0: Well, i here. I'm thinking I was surprising you, but all right. <laughs> John Aubrey actually does claim this is a Presbyterian custom. And for any of our listeners who don't listen to Devil's Dirt Star, go do that now. <laughs> Well, not now. Wait till this episode is done. Then we'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Back to sin eating. Now, while sin eaters drank beer in England, in North Wales, they got milk instead. Other sources say that sin eating is far older and started with, and again, quote from another website savage tribes. Now, these tribes would slaughter an animal over a grave to relieve the dead of their sins. Others say that sin-eating is based on Jesus Christ, who, according to the Christian Bible, willingly sacrificed his life to cleanse humanity of all their sins. Who knows? Nobody uh, really explained it to me, but there are different ways of where sin-eating may have come from. Yeah. And because sin-eater was often of a lower social class, once they were done consuming the bread and beer or bread and milk, the family members would chase the sin-eater out of the homes. This was not a highly respected profession, and the sin-eaters were often destitute and impoverished. Although they were in high demands, they were often shunned by the village. An article in the Irish Times even goes as far as stating that sin-eaters were driven out of the house with verbal abuse, sticks, and every available missile being hurled at them. Missile being the Irish... Terminology, not mine.
1: It seems not very kind.
0: Especially when you invited them to your house.
1: And, and they're doing you a favor. I mean, I don't know what your grandpa did. He probably did old kids or something. I'm eating his sins. You're eating the food that touched his dead body. <laughs> oh!
0: <laughs> now, even though this was not sanctioned nor approved by the church, sin-eating is associated with Christianity and was most prevalent in England and Scotland. The height of sin-eating was in the 17th and 18th century, but lasted until 1906. Yes, in 1906, the Germans were busy inventing gas-powered vehicles, and some people still believe that eating bread passed over a corpse alleviate the corpse's unconfessed sins by transferring the sins to the eater. Richard Munslow, the last sin-eater, was a farmer who lost many of his children. It's actually a very sad story. His first child died in 1862 when he was only 11 weeks old. But, you know, the Munslows persevered. Then about eight years later, in one week, the next three children all died of scarlet fever. Oh. All of these children were between one and six years old. Oh. I I know, I told you it's sad. (laughs) I did give you a little warning. (laughs) Now, it's alleged that the tragic loss led Richard to revive sin-eating. Now, Munslow did not really fit the mold of your traditional sin and he did it out of greed and sadness, not out of financial desperation like many others in the sin-eating profession. He didn't want to see others suffer like he suffered when his children died, and he offered to eat the sins of their dead to ease the mind of the living. Oh. Now, as I mentioned, this was not a, uh, something endorsed by the church since technically the sin eater like uh, willfully consumed other people's sin he or she in theory now carried these sins alongside their own which went against the teaching of the church
1: it's like a coupon those things are non-transferable <laughs>
0: <laughs> well sin eaters thought they were but you know there are there are extreme couponers <laughs> yeah this is true <laughs> so i guess maybe sin eaters is the version of extreme couponing yeah. <laughs> of sins <laughs> Sin eaters were not church members. But I also don't know who the Catholic Church is to judge because they did sell indulgences to absolve people of their sins. So the sin eater, just by the job's definition, would get a little bit eviler with every bite. So if somebody's a non believer who doesn't care about being a social pariah and wants free food, this job's for you. But if you're not interested, Because, you know, the pace sucks and you get all hours of the night free food. I did think about it because sin eating is a freelance job. You would show up right before a funeral, get free food, get drink, and then get $5. That, That didn't seem like it was worth it. It takes me more in gas to get there. I'm running out of ideas here. So I think I have a job. All right. Funerals are usually a time of mourning and sadness. Time to reflect on a life lived and lives touched. But back in the good old days of ancient Rome, we're going way back here. The VIPs had Archimedes, or funeral clowns. According to one source, during the fourth century in Greece and Rome, funeral clowns were extremely common for those who could afford them. And this source is actually uh, from a peer-reviewed journal, so I, wow. I'm not making shit up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the clown would put on a mask that resembled the deceased, wear clothes like the deceased, and would imitate and mock the deceased. As the funeral progressed, the funeral clown would run besides the corpse or behind it, by himself or with other clowns. They would make jokes and imitate the dead. It was quite common throughout the funeral process to see clowns running up and down, all over the coffin, dancing and making jokes just to get the mourning relatives laughing. So this article gave an abundance of evidence to prove that this was a real profession. So in some of the surviving texts from 160 BC, they were called funerary mimes, but they also had speech. So that's why we call them clowns, even though the original Greek word is funerary mime. Now, these surviving texts come from the Greek historian Diodorus, who gave a record of a clown that was hired for the funeral of El Aemilius Paulus. Now, these funerary mimes or clowns or imitators or actors would study the high-ranking nobles or aristocracy (laughs) while they were alive in the hopes that they would be hired for the funeral so they could portray the dead guy as accurately as possible, even matching their walk and gait. Wow. (laughs) So the clown just kind of followed somebody around hoping they would die. (laughs) (laughs) So they'd be hired. (laughs) (laughs) So the clown was even at the funeral of Emperor Vespasian, who was known to be cheap. The clown impersonating him said, how much did this funeral cost? And the procession said, 10 million sesterces. I did not find an equivalent to 10 million sesterces. There are no websites that convert 160 BC money to now.
1: (laughs) Million, we're going to say it's a lot.
0: (laughs) We're going to say it's a lot. 10 million sesterces. So the clown said with obvious shock, what? Why don't you give me 100,000 and throw me in the river Tiber? Or something like that apparently that joke made everybody laugh. I get it. I don't think it's that funny, but that's Greek humor for you. Now, another one of the most infamous Romans that we all know, Caesar had his own funeral clowns. This one bombed, though, he wasn't as funny. That actor said something along the lines of, oh, I save these people and they murder me. Well, (laughs) boo. The the crowd didn't
1: laugh. (laughs) Read the room, my guy.
0: (laughs) Now, people loved Caesar, so that made them angry. And it just fueled the fury of the crowd, and they just erupted in violence. Supposedly, Caesar had multiple (laughs) funeral clowns (laughs) at his funeral. Now, these funerary mimes weren't always flattering. In fact, at another emperor's funeral, these actors were playing flute and dancing on his grave and making fun of his defeat at the hands of the Persians. Unlike some of the other jobs I've covered, Archimimes were very well regarded and very well compensated, but I couldn't find what the compensation was, so we'll just have to take the, the article's word for it. Let's fast forward to 2023 because I wanted to see if Funeral Clown was still a thing. And uh, there was a Czech website that had. Uh, they were a memorial service website, and they offered services of uh, funeral actors. And these actors weren't just clowns. Uh, sometimes they were wearing Star Wars or Star Trek. I don't know the difference. The the the, the people with the all There's white. There's a big difference. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the what people. I'm <laughs> the, pe- <laughs> the people in the white get up and the. I don't know. I mean. Jedi temple robes are white, but. No, not the, the plastic book. I don't know. I don't... Oh, stormtroopers. Oh, those things. Yes. Like like armor? <laughs> yes, armor. Okay, a stormtrooper. That's <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> so, yeah, they offer funeral
0: stormtroopers. There you go.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. I'm hiring them. I want to roast at my funeral. Just make notes. I want to roast and I want stormtroopers there. Darth Maul will be cool too.
0: Hopefully, you're not the one being roasted.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm fine with me being. I'll be dead. I don't care. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, I'll make sure to order the uh, stormtroopers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, this Czech website, I could have translated to English, but I found that just looking at the pictures was more entertaining.
1: You probably, You probably <laughs> got the gist of it.
0: <laughs> what I did translate, they did claim that the funeral clowns are stormtroopers help the mourners bond, help humans express their emotions, produce joy and beauty. And clowns are generally good for your health. Interesting. That's the translated version. I don't know how accurate because I don't speak Czech. But I think those who are afraid of clowns might disagree with those points. Sidebar time, because I always have to have one. According to a website, more Americans are afraid of clowns than of climate change. We're screwed. Yeah, we're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think funeral clowns is going to make a comeback. Yeah. All right, fine. So one German woman thinks she found her calling. And Kala Kanufel attended the Art of Stumbling School in 2007. You know what, Ellie? I feel like I can teach an advanced stumbling class because I trip over absolutely nothing all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Can you teach it, though? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Now, Kala has perfected this art. And she comforts the living and juggles. Not at the same time. Well, maybe at the same time? When she isn't a clown, she's actually a professional psychologist. How do I know this? Because I found her website and resume. (laughs) And unlike the ancient or Archimimes, she doesn't make fun of the dead or impersonate them or dance at their coffins. But she helps the living heal. To date, there are no statistics, shockingly, on the number of funeral oh. clowns or mourning clowns, as she called them, in Germany or any other country. But Kala says that she's done two funerals as of 2021, and her website is still active. All right, I listened to Bundar Jobs. None of them tickled my fancy. Did any of them tickle your fancy?
1: I mean, if I had to pick, I'm going to probably go with the funeral clowns.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? My day job doesn't sound so bad after all. (laughs)
1: No, I'm I'm starting to think (laughs) 95 is pretty nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to believe we used to do such crazy, crazy things back in the day. Although I'm pretty sure that half the jobs we have today would seem insane to someone 200 years ago. Imagine trying to explain influencer. (laughs)
0: You you know, it's just explain doctor to somebody from 300 years ago. (laughs) So you jab me with a shot and it does what now? (laughs) (laughs) I do want to mention this is around a half hour show, and there are many, many, many other jobs that we could cover. In fact, I am definitely going to do an extinct job part two at some point in the future. I didn't even mention slubber doffers, human pinsetters, resurrectionists, phrenologists, toshers, broom squires. Herbstrewers, Toad Doctors, Gandhi Dancers, my favorite, Orgy Planners, and many, many more.
1: <laughs> what? Orgy Planners don't exist anymore? I don't believe that. <laughs> I mean, they may be called Porn Stars now, but... <laughs> no, those are the orgy attendees. Oh, my bad. <laughs> I mean, I could go on for
0: hours, but, but I won't. <laughs> All right. Another sidebar, but this one is actually related. I was recently on a trip and I met some uh, Europeans who were just shocked at the fact that I don't automatically get four to six weeks of vacation as mandated by their government. And this led me down the rabbit hole to investigate how many hours a week a medieval peasant worked. And it's kind of sad because I learned that medieval peasants actually worked fewer hours than the average American. I don't know about you, Ellie, but I have two jobs in addition to this podcast and between my nine to five day job and teaching duties, I I work over 60 hours a week and that's before researching anything. Yeah. (laughs) This is just the hobby. (laughs) Right. And you know what, fellow listeners, you can help us make this uh, become more than a hobby. Support us by telling your friends about it. Yeah. Now, the average peasant also took more days off than the average American. I got a bit of a trigger warning here. I'm going to throw a lot of numbers your way, but there is a point to it, I promise, so bear with me. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS, their data shows that the average annual hours worked by an American in 2017 reached 1,780. By 2022, another source said it was over 1,800 hours. The Bureau of Labor Statistics also says that the average full time employee works eight and a half hours a day. So now, a peasant in medieval England worked an average of 1,620 hours. That's 200 hours less than we work. I'm not saying that they had it easier by any means here. After all, agricultural labor is season dependent. So, you know, maybe eight weeks off a year, to possibly more depending on what kind of crop they grow. And back then, they were much more religious. And if the church gave a day off, everybody listened. Church says, holiday, it's a holiday. Professor Juliet Shore reminds us that our ancestors didn't rush meals and they had frequent naps. Her research unearthed a 16th century bishop quote regarding the average workday of his time. The laboring man will take his rest in the morning. A good piece of the day is spent before he comes at his work. Then he must have his breakfast. At noon, he must have his sleeping time. Then his bever in the afternoon, which spendeth a great part of the day. Bever is a light lunch, not a beverage. I was disappointed. I had to look that up. <laughs> the quote continues And when his hour cometh at night, at the first stroke of the clock, he casteth down his tools, leaveth his work, in what need or case soever the work standeth. In other words, as soon as it was time to go, he'd buy Felicia. (laughs) Although I like this guy's line a lot more. It sounds fancy.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Back to numbers. So your trigger warning's back. In the 13th century, as I said, the average adult peasant worked 1,620 hours. In the 14th century, they worked even less, 1,400 hours. By the Middle Ages, though, that went up, and the average Englishman worked 2,300 hours. By the end of the Industrial Revolution in 1850, the average British worker worked between 3,100 and 3,600 hours a year.
1: That's crazy. That's nine and a half hours a day. No days off. That's that's (laughs) insane. No
0: Christmas? No Christmas. Well, that's in Britain. The American counterparts? Oh, they worked more. 3,150 to 3,650 hours per year. Yay, capitalism. Woohoo! <laughs> the moral of the story is that long work weeks are a relatively modern invention that came with the Industrial Revolution. You know what American job takes the most days off? Hmm. You know that cesspool you were talking about earlier? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, goodness. <laughs> in 2017, the House of Representatives worked 192 days in the House, while senators worked 195. 2018, 174 for the House, 191 for the Senate. Mind you, you and I and everybody else on average in 2018 worked 251 days after removing holidays and weekends. Do you know how much the average congressman gets paid or the average person in the house gets paid? Too much. $175,000 per year. Too much. <laughs> Do you make one seventy-five dollars per year? Because nope. I don't. All right. Nope. So in addition to the obvious social media manager, SEO specialists, programmers, content creators, influencers, drone operators, or even podcasters, they, here I'm going to give you some jobs that didn't exist way back when. One job, which is my day job, by the way, data scientist. That is a relatively new job, and it was coined in the 1960s. Statistical analysis existed as far back as 1663 during the bubonic plague. Whoa. They had to track people's deaths somehow. Yeah. Someone <laughs> had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> he smelled bad, therefore he died. <laughs> One. One. <laughs> And data itself existed as far back as 18,000 BCE when early humans cut lines in a tally stick to store counts. Wow. But it wasn't a job in the same sense as it is now thanks to big data, which didn't even become a thing until the 1990s. The growth of the internet and storage systems and the access to it really birthed the job of data scientist. As I said, I should know because it's my day job all day long. Numbers, patterns, trends, forecasts. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and nutritionists. That's another job that is more modern. The field of dietetics can be traced back as far as the writings of Homer, Plato, and Hippocrates. But the field itself didn't progress until the 19th century. It was given a boost as a profession during the Second World War when the military realized how important it is to be healthy. Shucker. (laughs) Give someone a gun and uh, they'll tell you how important it is to be healthy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, they just got to do what the Germans did, meth it up.
0: (laughs) Too long, didn't listen. In summary, there were a lot of jobs that once existed. First, we talked about the knocker-uppers who knocked up people before (laughs) alarm clocks were commonplace. (laughs) Then we covered some really shitty jobs, like the very sought-after, influential, and well-paid groom of the stool. That's where you took care of the king's bathroom and bathroom habits. and a very, very, very shitty job of shit shoveler, i.e. gong farmer or night soulman, but it's exactly what it sounds like, shit shoveler. Then we talked about sin eaters who ate the dead's unconfessed sins by consuming food off of their body. And then, Finally, we talked about funeral clowns because even the dead need a send-off.
1: As always, thank you so much for listening and for sticking with us. Let us know what you think.
0: That's all we got for you today. Join us every other week for another story from the annals of history. If you've enjoyed this, please go and rate us on your favorite podcast channel. We can't do this without your support. And if you have an event you'd like to share, hit us up.
1: Like I mentioned earlier, you can find us online at Oh The Good Old Days on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and threads at O The Good Old Days. That's O H T H E G O O D O L D A Y S with Old and Days sharing a D. We need your support, and every five star rating and follow helps.
0: You know what? It's been five episodes, and all five episodes we saw that the good old days maybe weren't so good after all, but I'm going to find one where they were, so stay tuned.